I'm walking through a forest near my house. I come here most mornings with my dog. I love it because it's beautiful, it's very peaceful, there's no, no one else around. But of course there's plenty of life around. Um, I see lots of birch trees, there's lots of leaves in the ground, lots of other trees, I don't know the names of embarrassingly. And my dog tells me that there's squirrels and rabbits around as well. I never get to see them, but she apparently does. For me, the forest is a lesson in the circular economy in many ways, but in a different kind of way from the way we usually talk about a circular economy. Because often we talk about circular economy with closed loops, and that is um, a company makes a product, and the product or the materials and components go back to that company so they can use them again. But um, in living systems, of course, that's not really how things operate. Uh, as I step over some twigs and some leaves in particular, uh, we know that they will not transform magically back into another tree. Um, but what they will do is add value to the forest system as a whole. So they'll um, obviously they'll break down and they'll add to the regeneration of this area. And if the circular economy is to take inspiration from living systems, then perhaps it needs to take more inspiration from this open source attitude of the forest. The term open source is often used in relation to software. It's used to mean the source code is freely available for people to amend and to build upon. And if that sounds a bit fringe to you, then you'd be wrong. All supercomputers run on the open source Linux operating system, as does NASA's operations, the Large Hadron Collider, smart TVs, uh, and most of the internet. So open source is pretty much everywhere in the software world. But what about hardware? How can the principle of open source help materials and information flow in a circular economy? Well, I caught up with Alistair Parvin at WikiHouse. It's an online service that provides blueprints of houses and instructions for essentially printing them at home. In the spirit of open source, all of their designs are free to access. And I wanted to find out more to see how this might fit with the circular economy. So I started by asking Alistair where the idea for WikiHouse came from. Before we go into the detail of hearing more about how WikiHouse operates, could you tell us about where the idea came from? Yeah, so, I mean, like a lot of things, I think it was um, it was the confluence of ideas uh, from several people and from several different angles. So, you know, I'd been, um, we started it with uh, when I was working with Architecture 00, and we we're working with a whole bunch of collaborators as well. And... Um, you know, I particularly had been very interested in um, the housing crisis and the construction and why, not just the, 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 the housing crisis in terms of why a home is so unaffordable, which is actually more to do with land than the houses themselves, but also why it is that in a, in a wealthy country, we actually build such poor quality housing and why we had made such poor progress in terms of moving towards better insulated, zero carbon and circular buildings. So I was very interested in, in, in it from that kind of point of view, really. And, and I think all of us, and particularly uh, my colleague Nick as well, um, we'd been very interested for a long time in what open source was going to mean for architecture and for the built environment. So, you know, since what, you know, we were at university during the kind of early 2000s. And so we watched um, open source software 
go really change the world, right? Um, and completely transform the way that that you know the software industry worked, and therefore how in the end how every industry worked. And so we've been really, really interested for a long time in wait a minute, what does that change mean in the way in the way we design buildings? But um, it, it had never really connected through because just publishing drawing architectural drawings, for example, didn't really. It's not quite the same. Um, and I think the, the kind of key third, third ingredient that I think catalyzed the thing was when um, particularly a, a colleague of ours, Johnny, uh, and they went on to, 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 to found OpenDesk um, together, but he started experimenting with CNC digital fabrication. And that was the kind of aha moment for us because we realized that if you put these things, these things together, suddenly you could do something you could never do before, which is you could share building blueprints as code, right? Uh, and so the power of open source is that you can take a, a solution that's got thousands of hours of other people's knowledge already baked into it and just copy and paste and just use it, right? And that doesn't work if you just publish, say, blueprints or whatever. You, it's got to be something that really saves you time. And that was the power of it. When you when you added digital fabrication in the mix, it made this bridge between the world of, of code and the world of things. Um, and that suddenly allowed us to kind of connect the dots. And tell us, for, for those who maybe don't know, CNC routers, what, what do they do and where can people find them? So you can find them all sorts over the place, actually. So... Um, uh, a CNC machine, uh, basically close your eyes and imagine uh, that a very big printer and a drill had a child. Um, so essentially it's, stri it's strapping a big drill to a printer and you've got this sort of gantry arm. And what you can do is lay down a sheet of material, most commonly plywood, um, and then it'll essentially cut any shape that you like. Um, the gantry will move up and down. It'll cut to extremely high level of precision any shape you like out of those panels. So you then essentially got this jigsaw that you can then just slot together. Um, so you get this sort of, it's a way of kind of flat pack homes. So we always used to use this wonderful quote, which we think um, uh, it, it, we attribute to John Maynard Keynes, which is, it's easier to ship recipes than to ship cakes and biscuits. So the idea that we could develop really fantastic useful solutions share them as files and then effectively you're printing out these components um by cutting them together and then you can just assemble them and they just slot together and the fact that they're so precise then is that thing that kind of lowers the the, the skill barrier if you like um it, it, and you can do this thing of um there's this lovely phrase called poker yoke which means uh, mistake proofing and we're all familiar with this if you ever plug a plug socket into a wall you know you can't put it in the wrong way around or um Ikea on a good day um, uh, is brilliant at this, right? Because you can't, they, they, they shape the components so that um, you can't assemble them um, in the wrong way. So we realized we could do a lot of these tricks basically so that you could effectively unlock this capacity. And the cool thing is about CNC machines is that, um, you know, your, your traditional um, pre, you know, offsite manufacturing factory for homes is going to cost you at least 15 million pounds to set up, generally speaking, uh, up to sort of, you know, companies have spent 70 to 100 million pounds. Now, these things are amazing, these factories, huge, huge facilities that can turn out like many, many homes per day. But actually, often they run into trouble anyway, because the market doesn't have that level of demand. So we said, well, actually, um, what's cool about a CNC machine is you can buy them for, well, you know, even as little as 
£12,000 or so. Um, there's actually even amateur ones that you can sort of kit ones you can make yourself. But actually, the, the kind of like you can get really quite a good performance one for even sort of £25,000 or something like that. So you, you can set up a micro factory in a garage. And of course, there's loads of them already out there. So almost, you know, all across the UK and Europe and beyond, really across the world, there are these small uh, workshops um, with CNC machines and say, well, uh, hold on a minute, we've got this sort of, there's a factory already out there um, in, in almost every, every community. When you put it really simply, that's our mission with WikiHouse is we want to put the capability to build beautiful zero carbon circular homes into the hands of literally everybody. We want to, we want to try and make it as easy as we can possibly make it. So we can make it so easy that it effectively, it effectively takes, takes difficulty off the table. Uh, you know, we want to move into a world where nobody can say, oh, I'm sorry, we can't build zero carbon um, you know, circular homes because it's too difficult. And we want to show that it's not too difficult. Um, and we're not there yet, but we're getting there. So as I understand it, you, you can access your designs online. Is it, they're for free, is that right? And it, Absolutely, yeah. Why don't you charge people to use these? <laughs> um, because uh, to return to the analogy I used before, people don't pay for recipes. They pay for cakes and biscuits. So it's a kind of... Uh, um, like what was really funny is when we we said look we just publish all this stuff open source everyone was like oh this is really this is kind of radical and in the built environment i would argue that open source isn't that radical um nobody owns the 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 patent to the brick right or stairs or screws and yet try to build a building without any of those things so there's there's two arguments here which is one um straightforwardly we need to transform the way we build in the 21st century really quickly. We need to do it yesterday. So um, we just want to get, you know, get, if something works, we just want to get it out there and get it into as many people's hands as possible. But the other argument is saying, well, you can't make money if stuff is open, open source. And that just isn't true. Um, because as I say, people don't pay for um, uh, 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 recipes they pay for, for for cakes and biscuits uh, and this was literally played out i don't know if you remember during covid um uh, uh, i think was it kfc i think possibly mr kipling but i think definitely kfc they published the recipes uh and they're, they're they're making plenty of money now right they're fine um because actually it's about having that base of common knowledge so there's loads of really amazing ideas out there for how to transform construction, but they're being locked behind proprietary uh, uh, walls, essentially behind the capacity of just one company to scale. Whereas what we saw was that when we published those things out there as common knowledge, A, it means they scale much faster because people just take them on. But B, it means that we immediately recruit um, an, essentially an R&D team of hundreds of people <laughs> doing all the R&D and the testing for us, and we're not paying them anything, right? So we have all these fantastic contributions coming in from, from manufacturers, from designers, from engineers, from universities. Universities have been amazing because um, students are just like, right, oh, I'll, I'll test that block or that beam, and I'll do some experimentation, and I'll just share my data back. And then so everybody, everybody then benefits from it. So in a way, you can think of it as in the 20th century, you had huge companies which had their own kind of, R&D lab in the background um, and in a way we're acting as the R&D lab for thousands of small companies if that makes sense. Let's talk about materials a little. I see from your website plywood is the material you 
recommend and we know that plywood has some some very strong environmental credentials mm. um, in terms of long lasting and recyclable do you, do you thinking of the circular economy do you give specific instructions or advice to users of WikiHouse about um, how they can implement circular practices in their building it's so it's definitely a uh, a journey rather than a destination it just happens that right now in terms of that plywood is probably the strongest contender um, because it's it's really light um, for its strength to weight ratio is really really fantastic it's a it's got quite good environmental credentials etc so and I, I think the other the other dimension then in terms of circularity is um, actually a much more a kind of high level which is in the buildings themselves which is we want the blocks themselves to be reused you know buildings are insane like, i think build the built environment is the single biggest consumer of raw materials and it's the single biggest producer of waste and when you look at most buildings it's not hard to see why because we're using loads and loads of wet trades like concrete and blocks and things like that so first obviously switching to timber is a big big deal um and generally bio-based materials to um switching towards uh pretty much entirely dry processes on site so we're not using wet things apart from like the paint that you might decorate with um not using wet things on site so everything can be disassembled um and reused and that you know that in, in an ideal world that should even include foundations for example so um the ability to use um steel screw pile foundations obviously the joy of those being that you can actually unscrew them and remove them at the end of the building's life as well so it we can make some really really big steps even if we can't go all the way right we can make some huge steps forward straight away now so our hope is that actually um, you could take the building apart and actually reuse those Lego blocks in a new building as well. That, of course, also all depends on the design life of, so you know, on the on the on the kind of life of the material itself, uh, and it being well looked after. And as you can imagine, the real issue that you you start to then hit up against is having kind of hit a lot of those big easy wins early on. The long term big picture is where you start getting into really tricky stuff like making sure that. Um, that, that we can understand, we can trust in the performance and certify those blocks to be reused, etc., in future um, down the line. But the cool news is that that well, I say cool and terrible news is that unfortunately construction today is so bad that we can make quite a lot of improvements straight away um, because we're starting from unfortunately such a low a low bar. We talk a lot in our for, this is from an open systems lab point of view where you know our thing is how do you get how do we build the future system within the existing system right in a way that allows the world to transition from one to mm -hmm. the other and um you know our, our sort of if we had one thing sort of printed on the inside of our eyelids it would be that buckminster fuller quote about if you want to change something don't fight the existing system build a new system that makes the old one obsolete right um and that's sort of yeah, that's our kind of how we go about things. And part of that, we sometimes talk about the things, that the, the innovations that we're working on are, are, are deliberately designed to be tr what are called Trojan horses, but not in the kind of scary virus or, or full of Greek soldiers sense, but um, the idea of a thing, 
uh, that works now that contains, if you like, the DNA of the future system and creates space for the future system. So actually, if we can make a, a, a product that right now is actually cost competitive, significantly better in terms of embodied carbon, in terms of um, waste uh, and circularity, um, and in terms of you know being easier to use, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it doesn't have to be perfect, provided it then creates this, we containerize the problem and leave space within that problem. And it's fully open source for somebody to come along and say, actually, I can make that even better. Alistair painted an exciting picture of how an industry could be transformed for the better by the many. For him, open source in the built environment means evolving the designs of others to improve the way we build houses, including, and this is the crucial part for me, planning for now and the future with a circular approach to deconstruction and the repurposing of materials. Right, I'd now like to bring in my next guest. Let's talk open source material creation with Pilar Bolamburu from Materium. This young company was a Google Impact Challenge on Climate winner last year, thanks to their vision for creating locally appropriate material recipes that anyone could pick up and use. Is this the future of packaging? In a nutshell, what does Materium do? So Materium works promoting a more circular and regenerative materials economy where everyone everywhere can participate. And we do this with open data on artificial intelligence. How do people get involved in making their own materials and, and making them available? Mm-hmm. So... Nowadays, um, in the platform, uh, we have people that are material developers, designers, and researchers and scientists. So, and we're working to bring more SMEs and brands also to the platform. And the way people currently is involving in the platform and making their own biomaterials is first using the content that is available there. And also, um, all this community can contribute um, the recipes uh, that they develop to the website. So, for example, now, uh, most of the recipes that are in the platform are not actually developed by the, by the Materium team, are from, contributor, are from contributors from around the world. So we do have like a diverse set of recipes thanks to our contributors you keep seeing the word recipes and it conjures up an image of someone in their kitchen that's not (laughs) what you mean surely is it actually yes (laughs) um so the idea of that biomaterials are more accessible is also to make it easier to everyone to make them so a first step is how you can make these in your own home with your own resources and resources you can find locally. So all the recipes that you can find in the platform now, you can actually make it in your own kitchen. You don't need more than a stove, a pot, a few ingredients, and just like really basic um, kitchen tools. Right, so if I had a material need, say I had a, a product package or, or whatever, what... What would drive me toward Materium and what sort of support would I get there? Mm-hmm. So 
Today we're working in this artificial intelligence model that I mentioned before, is um, that is going to be able to match basically the needs that you have of a material, like the properties and the characteristics that you need for a specific application. That is, for example, if it's a stronger material, a more flexible material, that will depend on the application you will use it for. Um, and we'll match that with the database that is in the platform. So, for example, if I had a product that was perishable, um, if, if it was exposed to air, you would have examples of materials on there that would be useful for my product. Exactly. So in that case, will be you will need something that is, for example, um, more hydrophobic, uh, not completely because biomaterials is more difficult, they're completely hydrophobic, but they have certain uh, resistance to water. And also it will be important the gas and the moist uh, barriers of the material. So that will be a thing that you could eventually like uh, find in the model. Uh, but for now, in a first stage, we're focusing more in mechanical properties. That tends to be the one that, uh, especially in the packaging industry, um, it's need more uh, for processing the material. So the strength of the material, the flexibility. Uh, etc. And this AI-powered database that matches your needs with biomaterials in your database, I I want uh, people might be listening, wondering, well, what about issues of IP? Why why are these materials free to access? Most of the recipes in our platform are, of course, not developed by the Materium team, but are contributed by a large community of creatives, designers, and researchers that want to share their knowledge. So part of sharing the knowledge um, is because you want, and you want to um, share these to enable that these materials develop faster. Um, and of course, many heads things uh, better than just one, right? So that's one of the main points of being open source. Uh, and of course, we understand that some uh, brands or researchers, etc., will not want to share all their research, right? Uh, because there are some restrictions uh, if you want to develop a business, of course. Um, but developing a material is not just about the ingredients and their quantities. There's also processing, finishing, applications, etc. So we are trying to understand which information, for example, brands, organizations are willing to share. Uh, and what not. So for example, they could be open to share the recipes that fail or didn't work uh, for their specific application, but that can work and be useful for someone else. So being like open data and successful business are not mutually exclusive. And even more, basically, if you share your knowledge with a community, um, working in the same topics allows you to innovate like faster, basically, and also um, will help you to spot some issues that sometimes are difficult uh, to understand or, or maybe like even integrate some feedback on the whole cycle of your biomaterial. So I think that is actually a really good match between both options. doesn't need to be exclusive. So why, why is it important 
you think that people could make their own materials? Hmm. So I think that is key that more people can participate um, in this next generation of materials, basically, in creating biomaterials. That's, that not only allows for have like more disciplines working in biomaterials and understand all the implications through the whole life cycle of biomaterial, um, but also uh, allows you to have a more distributed um, way of producing. So instead of having one industry that is a big industry that basically is um, covering the supply chain change for all the world, you have distributed system systems that allows uh, that each of those systems actually uh, are more connected with their context um, and you can have the, the same like the sourcing of your material, the production of your material and the use of your material in the same ecosystem. On one hand, you talk about me making materials in my kitchen and on the other hand, you talk about things happening at great scale. I see that on your website, driving massive market entry. This can't work at scale, surely not. Pilar, come on. <laughs> well, definitely can work in a bigger scale, but in a different way that idea we have today about scaling up production. So if we want to have a more circular and regenerative production, we can't keep manufacturing the traditional way. So we can have this linear and highly extractivist way of production when we are not responsible of what we make. Um, so if we want to scale up today, we need to change that mindset. Um, we don't need one industry that provides the whole world. Uh, we know how fragile that is because when that industry is not working, then interrupt the whole supply chain. So we need a more resilient system that also regenerates our ecosystem. And the way to create these resilient systems aligns with how nature works. So we need to scale up thinking in diverse um, sources for production and distributed systems. So distributed systems focus in different ecoregions and how the production, the supply chain, of course, and the consumption are in the same region. And just like nature, uh, we can use diverse natural species that can that have similar components and we can extract, extract those from waste or by products of other production systems, or even use sustainable methods as cultivation and harvesting that not deplete our ecosystem and that not compete with the food industry. Um, so there are ways, but it's not going to be, we can scale and it, we need to do it, of course, but this doesn't mean that we um, will create bigger industries, but we will have like a system a network maybe of distributed production in different ge geographies, fabricating with different type of biomass. I'm back in the forest again, a place where it feels like Pilar took us to, a place where materials exist in abundance, waiting to be utilized by a system that appreciates their use. 
Every year we produce about 320 million tonnes of petrochemical plastic and as we know, some of that has proved to be problematic. But right now, in the forest, I'm surrounded by cellulose, by lignin, by many other materials, all of which are produced in enormous quantities that completely dwarf the production of plastics. And of course, these materials all add value to the biosphere and prove extremely useful. If we could harness some of that potential, well, that's the proposition that Materium are working on. Thinking further about the conversations I've been holding, it's clear that open source has played a big part in the software world, but um, Alistair and Pilar both clearly believe it will play a massive part in the hardware world too. And one of the biggest reasons for that, of course, is the existence of the internet. The fact that we can communicate so comfortably in a way we've never been able to do so before. And I think whilst we can all agree there's no silver bullet for creating a circular economy, I think that the open source will certainly play a part in that. And why is that? I think it's because open source allows us to harness the minds of so many people around the world who can help us come up with context-specific solutions for the linear problems that surround us. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this. Please click follow or subscribe um, so you can follow us on the Circular Economy Show podcast. Bye for now.